Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. This week we'll finally find out how common the prion that causes variant CJD is in the UK population. Sorry about the wait on that. The prevalence, uh, to put it very simply, is 1 in 2000. That's the approximate prevalence uh, that we calculated from the entire study. But first, this week in a joint editorial, the BMJ, BMJ Open, Heart, Thorax and Tobacco Control, all journals in the BMJ stable, announced that they would no longer carry research funded in part or in whole by the tobacco industry. In a moment, we'll be joined by Fiona Godley, BMJ Editor-in-Chief, to explain what that means. But first, a bit of historical context. It's hard to sum up the extent of the tobacco industry's manipulation of science. It took over 1,400 pages to document all the evidence presented in the US versus Philip Morris action that revealed the lengths the industry went to to protect their profits. A key witness for the prosecution in that case was Alan Brandt, Amelie Moses Cass Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. And he joins me now by phone to give us a potted history. First up, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Pleased to be able to. Um, as with the BMJ, we'd like to think that the case was kind of open and shut by Richard Dole's um, seminal paper in, in 1950. But scientific consensus on the link between uh, smoking and lung cancer took some time to, to solidify. Um, how long did that take and how involved was the tobacco industry in the sort of delay of the evidence being recognised? Well, in my judgment, after extensive historical review of the medical literature, as well as the internal tobacco documents, which have become available over recent decades, I think that the tobacco companies played a very important role in delaying um, the process by which science emerged about um, tobacco and its multiple harms. So after the famous Dahl Hill publication of 1950 and their subsequent publication in the British Medical Journal in 1954, um, I think there was really very powerful scientific evidence that demonstrated that smoking was the principal cause of lung cancer, very strong indications that it was a major cause of other serious and often deadly disease. And so the tobacco industry at that point in time Starting around 1950, certainly their activities were very clear by 1954, um, started to develop a strategy to undermine and discredit the emerging scientific evidence. And I think this confused physicians, it confused other scientists to some degree, but um, most importantly, it led to a very confusing period um, for the public who was at that stage trying to understand what kinds of risk does smoking constitute for me as a smoker. Mm. Um, you mentioned there the internal documents that have become available. And by looking at them, it's, it's clear to see that fairly early on in the story, they accepted internally that there was a, 
uh, causative link between smoking and lung cancer, but then continued to deny that publicly until as late as as kind of 2000, which seems extraordinary. Um, what were some of the techniques that they used to try and undermine the, the scientific evidence base? Well, there were really several aspects to the strategy. Um, but centrally, um, what they decided to do, and I think in some senses, from a public relations point of view, this was very shrewd, but incredibly unfortunate from a public health point of view, was that they decided to um, raise as many skeptical doubts based on very little to no evidence whatsoever about the emerging evidence. And they hired prominent scientists. They offered um, substantial grants to scientists, often to study issues that had really nothing to do with the tobacco-lung cancer link. But one of their key public relations advisors said, if you can foment a scientific controversy, if you can argue that the case is open, that there is inadequate evidence, that we don't understand um, the relationship of smoking to the development of lung cancer and other cancers, then you can create doubt. And this was really the principal goal. Um, how do you invent scientific uncertainty um, in the face of emerging um, fundamental scientific evidence of causality. And um, quite frankly, the industry was very effective at this. They had some of the best minds in public relations and advertising. And they also were able, quite frankly, to um, purchase science. And so this all had the effect of, um, of making consumers believe, at least to some extent, that there really was fundamental uncertainty. And then in the moment of uncertainty, they also promised that they were producing safer products, products with filters, products of light cigarettes. So this was a strategy to reassure smokers, to recruit new smokers, at a time when industry scientists in their own private laboratories were isolating carcinogen after carcinogen in tobacco smoke. And it's interesting there, the the way that that was done. It wasn't external PR agencies, you know, using advertising. It was actually using the apparatus of science to to cast doubt um, where doubt shouldn't have been. You mentioned there the fact that it wasn't just the, the lung cancer link that was being undermined. It was also the addictive properties of nicotine and health con consequences of, of low tar, which we saw lasting for ages, and uh, passive smoking as well, the problems with that. Yes, as each new um, fundamental scientific discovery about the character of the use of cigarettes, um, certainly the links to lung cancer, shortly thereafter the important links to heart disease, many other respiratory diseases, and a range of other serious cancers, as each new piece of information emerged, it was contested aggressively by the tobacco industry. And addiction is one of the principal examples. As evidence of uh, understanding of the pharmacokinetics of nicotine and its addictive properties began to emerge clearly, um, the industry was both denying its addictive properties and at the same time investigating them in their own laboratories. And one of the things that I think is, is especially striking is that 
the industry did fundamental work on the character of the science of addiction, um, then denied that tobacco was addictive, and then took steps in their own laboratories to enhance its addictive properties so that smokers who were trying to quit would actually have more difficulty rather than less. And so these are the kinds of deceptions and deceits and you know, actual lies um, that led to litigation against the companies for fraud and negligence and many other um, issues like that, including in the United States for racketeering. And um, in the course of these trials, in a, an enormous archive of industry documents about their science and their promotion of tobacco emerged. Hmm. And all those documents are kept in a sort of central repository that's now publicly available. Absolutely. And it's quite a remarkable, um, it's a remarkable archive. And unlike I'm a historian, I often have had to travel to archives to see papers in boxes. This is an archive that is completely accessible um, digitally. And it's possible for anyone to get online and actually look at what the industry was doing um, at a particular moment in time. And it's a remarkable resource maintained by the University of California at San Francisco, the legacy tobacco documents. And I invite your readers to um, get online and um, get a look at these documents because I think they present an overwhelming case for how the industry operated in the past and continues to operate at this time. Mm. And you mentioned earlier that it was you know, right from the beginning of the story back in the 50s that uh, this PR process to undermine the evidence against uh, tobacco um, started, but uh, it took almost 50 years for this archive and, and all that information to come out. So do you think it would have been possible to actually see the full extent of the story until that in- information was made publicly available? Well, one of the things that struck me in my own research is that, unfortunately, this is an enormously important story for medicine and public health, but it might well never have emerged. And one of the reasons that it did, and that we have this very unusual, unique archive of internal tobacco documents, had to do with the litigation in the United States. And at first, the litigation typically failed and um, the lawyers for plaintiffs here often had difficulty getting the industry to produce documents in trials. But over the course of this litigation, especially beginning in the 1990s, um, judges ruled that the tobacco industry had to produce these documents in trial. And so we probably know more about the history of the tobacco industry than any major industry in modern times. And so we were very fortunate because I think these documents have played an important role in understanding what happened, how it happened, what the threats to public health were, and the fundamental irresponsibility of an industry producing a deadly product. And um, so it's really a unique story, but it has occurred to me we might never have known it and we might never have understood just how intricately the industry worked um, to um, to deny the science of um, smoking's harms. Mm. Um, and there was talk of the need to perhaps set up something similar to document and collate the worst excesses of the pharmaceutical industry. Now, as a historian of science, um, do you think that would be an important step to take? 
I would like there to be far greater transparency about the internal documents of many industries. And it really raises fundamental questions for government and government regulation about um, how much material can be made public and in what context. And all of these industries, obviously, and to some degree appropriately, claim proprietary trade secrets that protect um, their important documentation and archives. And I, for one, understand that. But there are many industries, quite frankly, where public health is affected. And um, to have greater public access to how industries operate and, and market and produce products, um, some of which may be life-saving, and I believe that's true of the pharmaceutical industry, but some of, some of which may be enormously dangerous, um, promoted to children, um, so, you know, I'm very concerned about the food and beverage industries and how they're operating. I'm very concerned in many ways about the energy industry and how they have conducted campaigns to um, deny the science um, of climate change. There is emerging evidence that many industries have learned a lot from the way the tobacco industry conducted itself over this last 50 to 60 years and are using what they call the tobacco playbook of undermining science and, um, and using a variety of strategies to um, produce science that is um, very weak but contests well-known facts. And so we really need to look at this entire aspect of medical publishing and the internal characteristics of the industries that um, that produce both dangerous as well as, you know, helpful products. Well, Professor Brandt, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us this afternoon. In the face of that egregious misuse of science and scientific publishing, the BMJ, BMJ Open, Heart, Thorax and Tobacco Control have decided to stop considering for publication any research funded by the tobacco industry. Fiona Godley, Editor-in-Chief, is here to explain why. So, thanks for coming into the studio, Fiona, to talk to us about this. Um, what exactly are you saying in this editorial? The BMJ Thorax, Heart and BMJ Open have decided as a group of journals that we will no longer consider for publication any study that is partly or wholly funded by the tobacco industry. And in doing this, we have really built on decisions that have been made by a number of other journals over recent years, um, feeling that it was time to make this particular stand. Mm. And we have heard already, obviously, about the extraordinary lengths that the industry went to to subvert and suppress the science. Um, but your position has changed from Richard Smith's, uh, who said sometime back in 2003 that you know BMJ would and didn't mind publishing research for this. So what, what's brought about that change and, and why now? I think there's been a dawning realisation that um, assumptions that we could um, respond... Sorry, I'll say it again. I think there's been a dawning realisation of the extent of the bias and research misconduct relating to uh, some of the studies funded by the tobacco industry. And although people in the past might have relied on peer review and also on transparency statements around the fact that the research was funded, leaving the reader really to draw their own conclusions, 
what we do know is that biases and research misconduct are often very hard to detect and also that the source of funding can influence the outcomes of studies in ways that are invisible to the peer reviewer or the reader. And so given this dawning realisation and given the um, role of medical journals, which is to try to advance healthcare and to try to put in front of readers uh, as near truth as we can manage, uh, it felt wrong that we might continue to welcome in some way research of this sort, which would have hidden biases and where there was over many years evidence of substantial research misconduct by mm. the industry. Mm. I mean, the tobacco industry is obviously at sort of very extreme end of a spectrum of misconduct when it comes to scientific research that's gone on. So where is the line going to be drawn? You know, is this something that perhaps, as some of our rapid responders have asked, that will lead to sort of questions about pharma-sponsored um, studies or, you know, any other sort of self-interested group who sponsors research? Commercially sponsored research does create issues for the medical literature. As you say, tobacco industry at one extreme, you've got a, a product there um, which is harmful and, and there's no health benefit um, considered by some to be the single most deadly consumer product ever made. With the pharmaceutical industry, you've got drugs that are enormously important and largely extremely helpful uh, to health. But you also have a growing body of evidence of bias and research misconduct by the pharmaceutical industry uh, in the same vein as, as what we have seen over the years with the tobacco industry. So I think there are issues here. And um, although we're seeing quite a lot of progress in the last year or so around transparency to clinical trial data and efforts to increase the integrity of, of, of research funded by the pharmaceutical industry, I think it's fair to say that unless we see that progress very far um, to, to this extent that we could really trust pharmaceutically funded research to be uh, unbiased and to, be, to have proper research integrity around it, we might need to begin to look at not publishing research funded by the pharmaceutical industry. The BMJ doing this on its own would be um, both difficult but also would not make a huge impact on the world because we don't publish a lot of pharma-funded research at the moment. So it would be another um, occasion when one would, if, if the need was strong enough, seek a consortium of journals, hopefully um, more widely, to really um, address this problem. But as I say, I think at the moment we're still hoping that that the changes going on at the moment around clinical trial transparency will bring us to a better place and that we won't need to take this slightly more radical approach to the pharmaceutical industry. Mm. And you can read the full editorial with links to the case I talked about earlier on bmj.com and in print this week. Now, variant CJD. I'm joined by Sebastian Bradner, a professor of neuropathology at University College London and one of the authors of new research published on bmj.com. Professor Bradner, thank you very much for taking the time to come in and talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for inviting me here for this interview. So, BSE loomed large in my childhood. I remember being on trains and seeing you know, piles of cows being cremated in fields and things like mm -hmm. that. But outside the UK, it's possibly less well known. Could you tell us about BSE uh, and what that meant for 
public health in the UK and and why it was a big concern. Mm-hmm. So first of all, BSA is a uh, spongiform encephalopathy, is a prion disease in cattle. How it exactly started and uh, what actually triggered it is probably still unknown. It is thought that a change in food processing or in processing of, of, of uh, cattle feed might have uh, played a role. And it really started in the 1980s and uh, peaked in 1992. And um, so this was one thing. And obviously, there was a great concern about food safety as well. But the concern then became reality in that uh, in the mid-90s, uh, the first people developed a novel neurological syndrome called variant crossed jakob disease. And I need to explain a little bit more about that because the sporadic crossfit jakob disease is a prion disease that sporadically occurs in humans. Mm-hmm. It's been there for centuries or uh, probably uh, much longer. However, it was first diagnosed in the 1920s, a bit more formally. Technically, Kreuzfeldt-Jakob disease, the sporadic form, is a neurodegenerative disease that shares some properties with Alzheimer's disease and other uh, more common neurodegenerative disease, but it is very rare. There's one person in a million per year uh, dying of uh, Kreuzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is in Britain is 60 people per year. Mm, and that's spontaneous. That's the spontaneous form. Then there's a rarer form, which is the genetic form, the inherited prion disease, as we call it, or familial Kreuzfeldt-Jakob disease. There are other syndromes which are caused by a by the gene encoding for the natural prion protein having a mutation, and that mutation kind of precipitates the misfolding of the protein. So that's yet another form. And then there are the transmitted forms. One of the transmitted forms uh, from human to human is the so-called iatrogenic transmission. Now then, there are the so-called zoonoses, which means it's a transmission transmission from uh, animals to uh, between different species. So that includes animal to human. And this is exactly what happened uh, with BSE in the 1990s. In parallel to the development of uh, BSE, but with a five or eight year delay, Varian CGD emerged. And first of all, the mode of transmission was all often discussed and there was a lot of speculation, but it is thought that the most likely transmission is, um, is contaminated food. So BSE prions that made it into human food in the food chain. That's the thought, that's the, uh, that's the idea. And um, the first proof that BSE prions and variant CGD prions are similar or identical came from the uh, group uh, led by John Collins. They discovered that the fingerprint, the biochemical fingerprint, uh, the so-called glycotyping pattern, is identical in BSE prions and in variant CGD prions. And it's quite distinct from the sporadic CGD prions that we usually find in humans as a spontaneous disease. And something else was also discovered at the same time by collaborating pathologists here in the UK that whilst the sporadic CJD is a disease of the brain, so of the central nervous system, brain, spinal cord mainly, uh, the variant CJD, and that's quite relevant now for our paper here, for our study, also colonizes the lymphoreticular system, the spleen, tonsils, and there are lymphoid follicles in the gut, including the appendix. Mm-hmm. So this makes it a very distinct 
diagnostic feature of Varian CJD. And this is the feature that we're exploiting as a surrogate marker for the presence of Varian CJD prions. So since the BSE outbreak, there's been various surveillance initiatives that have gone on. Um, some of them published in the BMJ, including one that looked at uh, routinely collected tonsil tissue, and that found that there was no evidence of prions uh, in the population. Now, you've done some more surveillance, this time looking at routinely collected um, appendix tissue. What did you find when you looked for prions there? Uh, what rate was it in the population? The prevalence, uh, to put it very simply, is 1 in 2,000. That's the approximate prevalence uh, that we calculated from the entire study. And you've looked at different age range cohorts. So yes, how did it split between cohorts. them? Yeah. So there's no difference. Surprisingly, there's no difference at all between the different birth cohorts. Um, in, within the study, we have actually a very um, fine um, uh, discrimination of the different birth cohorts, which were then, then later on pooled, but there's no difference. Uh, by no, There's no way statistically we could uh, de uh, detect any significant difference between the birth cohorts. And there's also, in interestingly and importantly, there's no difference between the regional um, uh, incidences. All the regions have the same incidence. That's interesting. And you didn't expect to find that? You expected to find a, a, a variance? Well, actually, with regard to what we expect, we were actually fairly unbiased. So we just went ahead with the study. We had our um, objective and our hypothesis. Um, the objective was to find... Um, so the objective of the study was to um, validate existing and pre-existing studies, previous studies. And the hypothesis was that uh, we would find a similar number uh, within the statistical, um, um, uh, well, a similar number as in the previous number. But the main objective was also to, uh, to, to confirm and corroborate uh, previous studies. And because there was a discrepancy between the previous appendix study and the previous tonsil study, this study was essentially designed to yield the mo most robust data to date. Mm. And if we go back to that uh, initial tonsil study that you mentioned there, yeah. um, that found no prevalence in, in population. So why? what is yeah. the difference there? What was going on? And, and why is this one more robust than, than that? It's not... Uh, well, the problem with the previous Tonsa study was it was a different technique used and the sample collection um, made the specimens more vulnerable for degradation. And in fact, we found two samples which had a... Um, uh, two samples with a equivocal results which were not good enough to really confirm that there were two in 15,000 right. or two in 10,000. So we found two possibly positive samples in 10,000 in, uh, in our uh, previous Tonsa study. But because of the quality of the samples, because the way we're, they were collected, um, it was um, not as conclusive as we would have wished. Mm. And you're confident that this is more conclusive, this Study. It is an established test. It is the same test method that has been used in a previous uh, appendix study. And we have ensured that we have um, used two antibodies, uh, so detection method, that is robust. Mm. Um, 
And this study is bound to be picked up with a, a prevalence rate of one in 2,000. Yeah. People will be concerned uh, about this. Yes. Given that there aren't any current people with variant CJD, do yeah. you think um, that this, uh, you know, the the genetic variant, genetic variation that you've seen mm -hmm. in in the people who are carrying but haven't yeah. manifested any mm -hmm. disease, uh, is there any indication as to to which way that might go, or is that still just a a total unknown? I think it would be um, not very wise to speculate what could happen or could not happen. I mean, certainly one thing is known. The patients that developed variant CGD in the past all were MM, codon 129 of the prion gene, MM. None of these patients was MV or VV, but uh, this study now shows that uh, there's a significant population out there with uh, VCGD prions, abnormal prions, in their lymphoreticular system with the genotypes, PRP 129, MV, and VV. Now, we don't know what's going to happen to these people, whether they will ever develop any disease. Perhaps not, perhaps yes. And I think this was one of the reasons why we were, why everyone was quite adamant that there's a very robust unlinking and anonymization procedure in place. Because we can, if someone found out they had a positive appendix, we can't predict what's going to happen to these people. Mm. And it would be very dangerous because it might well be that all these people who were picked up as positive in this surveillance and extrapolated to the population, it would be several thousand in the country, they may live without developing any um, uh, disease. But it is also possible that a second wave that might present quite differently as a different type of neurodegenerative disease, still a prion disease, but with a different presentation from that of variant CJD. So because it is unclear what to expect, um, it is uh, probably wise not to speculate too much about the possible future. Hmm. And uh, given the sort of ban on blood products from the UK going to, for example, the States, yes. Um, which people have commented about, given that there are no cases of variant CJD mm -hmm. currently in the population. Yeah. Your study would seem to suggest that that's still uh, a sensible decision to make, given the potential pool of the prion in, you know, in the population out there. I think um, the um, development of a blood test is something that would be very timely and would be probably very um, important to introduce because that could give a more definitive answer than the speculation based on this current surveillance. Mm. So this is just surveillance? It's giving us a baseline of the current presence of variant CJD prions in the population in the UK across different birth cohorts, across different uh, geographical regions. That's what it is. But the baseline is very important to inform us about, as we have done here, about the prevalence, and also give us an estimate on the risk of, um, the potential risk of blood transfusion, blood product safety, and to further advise the government and Department of Health um, to make recommendations about blood safety and uh, development of development and prioritization of blood tests that could detect uh, prions. And again, that research is available in full on bmj.com. That's all for this week. 
Next week, we'll hear from England's new Chief Inspector of Primary Care. Where will Professor Steve Fields Gaze first fall? If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find our back catalogue, as well as podcasts from other specialist journals, from family planning to neurosurgery, on our podcast homepage, podcasts.bmj.com. Thanks for listening.